welcome to System Mastery, the podcast where we review old role-playing games in the same way that you could say a coroner reviews corpses or, or a cow brings up half-digested grass to review it for a while. This week, we'll be discussing a weird offshoot of the earliest days of role-playing, the very British, very nerdy fantasy wargaming, the highest level of all. So, with poignards in our codpieces and songs in our heart, let's get started on today's System Mastery. Bocephus or Bocephus, that's Hank Williams, but Bucephalus, that's that's Charlemagne's horse. Yeah, there you go, you got it. Okay, got it in two. Good All job, right. Brocephus. <laughs> Brocephus. I'm old Brocephus, and I know the lyrics to every one of my own songs. Yeah, and I'm Brocephalus. <laughs> Brocephalus, the horse of Brolemane. Yeah. Sure. Charlotte. Char- Charlemagne. Charlotte, bro. <laughs> Charlemagne. Charlemagne. <laughs> Charlemagne. <laughs> <laughs> His horse, go. Procephalus. <laughs> Coming soon to a frat near you. Hooray! That's going to be the best frat party. Oh my god. It'll be the kind of frat party that the author of today's book might throw. So anyway, as always, I am Jeff, and as always, John is here with me. And as always, hello. As always, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so this week we have a real treat for you. Yeah, just a sweet piece of meat. A real treat for you. To eat. Our fleet with your feet. Figure it out. Yeah. Tweet at us. <laughs> God. That was, that was the worst. <laughs> All right. Okay. That's, that's the kind of quality podcasting you come to expect from System Mastery. That wasn't us, though. That was two weirdos just broke in here and told a bunch of shit rhyme jokes and then left. <laughs> These two asshole bros came in here yeah. named Brocephus and Brocephalus. They're the worst. God, I hate those guys. They keep coming in here making shitty rhymes. Oh my god. Okay, <laughs> we're reviewing Fantasy Wargaming. The... What level is it? Well, uh, probably the medium level of Fantasy Wargaming, right? Oh no, it's the highest level. Oh, of all? Of all. Oh my gosh, Fantasy Wargaming, the highest level of all? Of all. Of Okay, not of some. No, of all. <laughs> This is a book written around 1980, 81. This is like the original Heartbreaker. Oh, this is the first Grognard. Yeah. This is the first guy who read D&D and was like, I could do better. Yeah, it's original. I disagree. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. This book has the stink of Cambridge all over it. <laughs> Here at Cambridge, we like all role-playing games to be a bit better than D&D. <laughs> D&D may be good enough for the lads at Choate. <laughs> Oh, oh, those Americans and their D&D. Why, they wouldn't know a good role-playing game if it came up and bit them on the bollocks. <laughs> so this book's from around 81, and it's sort of a reaction to Dungeons & Dragons, I guess? It is 100% a reaction to that, as you find out even just in the intro. Yeah. Like, he has a little foreword, and uh, he gives a, a little backstory like, So, normally, I just do wargaming. But, you know, you can't do wargaming without someone going, hey, let's play D&D. So we did. And then says that, no, he didn't. He actually played, like, Tunnels and Trolls. Now, that's a thing. That was a thing back in the very early days of D&D. The, the uh, licensing market wasn't the same as it is now. So there were a whole bunch of almost D&Ds that were flooding the market. 
And since this guy's in England, and it's maybe three years after D&D was published in the first place, Tunnels and Trolls may well have been all he could get. Oh, yeah. I I mean, D&D didn't really get to a point where it was saturated, like, more globally until way later. Yeah, sometime in the mid-80s. So this guy was on the vanguard of nerds. Oh, yeah, he was definitely in there. I assume he had some, like... I don't know, message boards or something, maybe? In the 70s? I doubt well, it. I feel like he was... It was probably mostly through zines, like newsletter type things. Possibly. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure he probably had a lot of, like, war game magazines that came to him. Yeah, there's probably a lot of by-post type stuff that was occurring here. He even mentions his fam- his favorite uh, wargaming products. Yeah. Like the the It's just called, like, the Wargaming Experts License or something, and it's just a company that makes rules to fight 15mm lead miniatures with. 15 million lead miniatures. That's a lot of lead. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, when I'm... So I was reading through the beginning of this book, Mm -hmm. and to start with, I was like, you know, even though this is definitely one of those, I read D&D and I can do better, he does at least bring up a few things. Like, one of the things he says is, uh, in many ways, D&D is unsatisfactory, take a typical dungeon. Firstly, very few designers seem to give any thought as to why it is there. Secondly, the party of adventurers seem an unusual, oddball assortment of warriors wearing armor and bearing weapons from a wide variety of cultures and historical periods. Black and white magicians, thieves, clerics, and a few slaves to carry any loot, which no one had slaves, I'm sorry. He keeps mentioning slaves, and he's so weird about it. No one had... It was hirelings. I mean, literally, hire is right there in the name. Oh, yeah. There were rules for how much you had to pay them. It was one of the biggest parts of 1st Edition D&D. It was the annoying section about hirelings and how hard it is to maintain them and care and feed for them and pay them. Yeah. They aren't slaves. So, apart from the sheer unlikelihood of such a motley crew being able to agree on any course of action without coming to blows, why should they associate together in the first place? And that's a good enough beginning, at least in the old days, because before it was just... Alright, we went from the idea of the tabletop wargaming where you're like, okay, I take this unit and this, and I'll complement that, and you didn't really care too much unless you were doing historical wargaming why those units were together. Well, I, I think at this point, historical wargaming is like literally all there was. I don't think there was a sci-fi wargaming until, probably until that Star Trek thing, that, that Prime Federation crap that we, we uh, reviewed <laughs> a long time ago. Well, the, I mean, you did have fantasy wargaming. Yeah, there there was some of that, but in this time period, it was almost all Napoleonic wargaming. Like, oh, yeah. so much so that that word was stuck on there. It was Napoleonic wargaming, and if you were playing it in a time period where Napoleon was not present, it was Napoleon Napoleonic wargaming, except this time it's Normans and Saxons, guys. Yeah. It was Napoleonic wargaming in the time of whatever. Yeah. Napoleonic Tolkienian wargaming. Ugh. But, I mean, at least his basic idea in the intro is... Alright, I wanted to get to a point where a game would have reasons for people to be together, have dungeons that make more sense, because, I mean, he does mention a lot of the early dungeon layouts were like, here's a room, there's two orcs in it. The next room you find is a skeleton, a hobgoblin. And then the next room is an illithid, and he's hanging out with three bugbears. You're like, why the fuck would any of them be together? Or and he mentions even in, that. even in adjacent rooms. I mean, what is this, like an apartment complex you're raiding? Oh, yeah. And so he's like, you know, there's no reason for them, one, to all be together. They should be hating each other. Two, any treasure that's in there should have just been looted by these guys long ago. And so I go, yes, in the early games of D&D stuff, there was that kind of issue. So I at least understand where you're coming from. Unfortunately... That basic premise is then immediately thrown out the window. Yeah, so he can just ramble on endlessly about what life was really like in the Dark Ages. Yeah, you can tell that uh, because this guy was huge into history in Cambridge, 
and mentions like, yes, in order to do this, I spent months in the Cambridge Library. I'm like, oh man, you got lost. You had a, a semi-decent idea of what you wanted to do, and then you went directly up your own ass and forgot what you were trying to do. Yeah, he was a real huge McDuck about town studying <laughs> up on Dark Age history. <laughs> uh, and so the beginning chapters are all just, so what was life like? In the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages. Oh, yeah, and he goes way, way back to basics. And just just to give you a real scene setting for if you've never seen a copy of Fantasy Wargaming, the highest level of all, you should know that it's a novel and not a uh, a standard format RPG. It's actually the size of, like, a, a Sherlock Holmes novel. Yeah, no, it's it's a several hundred pages long... Hardback. Hardback book. Yeah. So that's, that's a thing you should know about this. But starting from the very beginning, he gets right into it and he's like... Well, the real history of England in the 13 through 1500s is a history of the soil. Oh, yeah. So, the book very much is all about, all right, let me tell you about how civilization in this time period works. We've got these serfs, and they are serving under these people, and sometimes you'd have a baron, and sometimes you'd have a king, and sometimes you'd have this and that. And he just goes off on the various social structures were very important to him, so much so that they made it into the actual crunch of the game. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, quite a bit. Uh, so he, basically his concept of, okay, a fighter and a cleric and a thief and a wizard would never hang out with each other, basically boils down to because they are of different social stratas. Which is odd, because he starts this game off saying, oh, these guys would never be together, and you know there has to be a reason for that to happen, but then you still randomly roll for what you're... Uh, like, status is in society. Yeah. So it's way more difficult to still make a party that's all together because before you could say, oh, well, we're all whatever. Like, usually your party is all just, I was a, you know, I'm a farmer's kid, but I took up my dad's old sword from the war and now I'm a fighter or whatever the fuck. You're just some schlub. Right. But and now you could be like, I'm the son of the Marquis. Okay, great. Why are you hanging out with a thief? I wouldn't be. I'll have him killed. Yeah. No, it's fucking stupid. Yeah, it's, it's well, it's because he got lost. Yeah, he, he very had, much got lost. He set out with this idea going, well, D&D, &D, wash out your very mouth, which I think is something he actually says in there. Yeah. Yeah, but then, this is how you should play D&D, &D, chummy fellows, and then immediately gets up his own butt about wargaming and forgets that he had an idea in the first place. So, in the beginning, he's like, I'll show you how you could write a dungeon that an elven wizard and a cleric might wish to go into. And then near the end of the book, he's like, uh, actually, instead, here's a story of 1,200 Saxons fighting 1,300 Normans. <laughs> this is what you should be doing, player. And it's like, well, why? I don't want to do that. I want to go in a dungeon. Well, the reason but you should be doing this is, I like wargaming and not roleplaying. Yes, that comes up quite a bit. So, so, in addition to, in the beginning, he's got that standard heartbreaker thing where he goes, this is what uh, cities were like, and this is what stores were like. And this is how towns were set up, and this is the difference between Dark Ages and Middle Ages. And you get a lot of that, where people used this type of weapon during this, and then they moved on to whatever. So you get that a lot in these, but he also ends up having what I thought was probably the best idea in here, which is his, his ideas for how religion works. Yeah, the whole magic and religion section at least has an interesting kernel of an idea. And... For anyone who's read any uh, Terry Pratchett or there are some other sort of fantasy authors who do, do this as well, is the idea is everything is true. Like, even the stuff that conflicts is true. All things from religion 
all religions are all true. Yes, although only two, only one really matters. I guess two in the book. Well, you've got three things that he actually gives a fuck about. You've got the Vikings. Yeah, the, the, so you got the Norse mythology. You've got Norse mythology. You've got Celtic mythology. Right. And you've got the uh, Christianity. Christianity. Right. And now, that's pretty much it. But he's... It's very interesting because the whole idea behind it is everyone has mana. Mana is your personal magical energy. And when you do any religious ceremony, you take your own mana and you give it to whatever god you're worshipping. Mm -hmm. So gods end up being like these giant reservoirs of mana so that a cleric, he says, could technically be far more powerful than a wizard because he can call upon the vast reserves of mana of a god, but gods are also fickle and assholes and might not give you anything. In fact, they're less likely to give you anything if you're a cleric because you already believe in god. <laughs> yeah, they're like, but if I did something around you, you, I'm already getting all of your power. What the fuck do I care? Right, I'll save a burning building full of heretics so that they'll convert, but I'm not going to save, for example, a church that might fall down. Because if you guys die, I just get all your mana when you come to me. <laughs> so the uh, the big thing with the uh, the whole mana thing is it did at least set up sort of an interesting dynamic. Because everything is true, it meant the reason that the Christian god ended up getting so powerful is because he is a jealous god. And if you don't know anything about Christianity... God's whole thing is, you shall have no other gods before me, I am the one true God. Which commandment is that again? Uh, that would be the very first one. Yeah, I was thinking, that's the first commandment, right? He's, yeah. He's pretty much demanding right off the bat. He's and like, he's, he's constantly referred to as a jealous God. Right. Thou shalt change their Facebook status to sing, to not single. Yeah, no, you shall definitely put it as seeing God. <laughs> it is not complicated. Right, that's the first commandment of the modern age. So, so yeah. Then it makes sense where you go, oh yeah, the, a lot of Christian Christians were trying to get rid of other religions and convert people because now instead of it just being, oh, we want to revert, convert people to our religion, it's God wants more power and he's power hungry and Which, wants you to convert people so he gets more mana. Now that makes sense to me on, on one level because if you look at the mana reserves for the average human, they can have anywhere between like 7 and about 30 mana. At any given time, they can they can boost that way up by fasting or participating in evil orgies or well any ritual really. any ritual of any kind. Uh, but they have some you know the average wizard's going to have more than twenty mana. But God, who is statted out in this book, just you know <laughs> Which in case we'll, you, we'll get to that. If you wanted to know the stats on God, we'll come to them soon. But just a little preview: God has three hundred and eighty-four mana, <laughs> which means that on average he's probably got around oh gosh I don't know like 80, 90 worshippers tops. Well. Okay, 80, 80 that he's currently sitting on. About a hundred-ish worshippers that he's currently working with. That's he, he, Satan has more mana than God in this. Like, significantly more. Well, yeah. Because, I mean... You got more people worshipping him because there's so many impure people in the world. Yeah, because anytime you're like, well, I'm not following God's commandments, then now your mana is getting funneled to the devil. Man, the devil really worked out the better business deal in that situation. Hell he was, yeah, he did. If he was like, what's, what's your piece of the pie chart, God? And God's like, oh, my piece of the pie chart is the part that says God. He's like, oh, so everything else is up for grabs? I'll just take that part. <laughs> I'll take the part of the chart that represents Pac-Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the fact that he's just like, oh, so if someone's not, like, actually a pure good person, I get that? Neat. Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> what a deal I've just made. The problem is, you still have to be Christian. Because otherwise, like, if I'm some Viking and I'm 
a huge asshole, I'm probably still giving my mana to, like, Thor and Odin and all of them. Which is weird. It's weird. I, I assume that's because he wanted to have this game playable between about a 500-year span of history. Because the North mythology was way dead. Oh, yeah. Well, he's, he's basically like, if you're playing in the old mythology times, you can have... Like, your Norse mythology, and then he goes on about the, like, the more Celts. the Celtic mythology, and says that as their power waned from being gods, they turned into lesser beings, so that's why you have all of the fairies, is this used to be the Celtic gods, and then they lost enough power that now they're just, like, little magical beings instead of gods. The whole Celtic mythology thing, when he's talking about it, is another spot where I feel like this guy saw an awesome opportunity and passed by it on his way to developing shit farms. Because he's like, oh, let's talk briefly about Kukulain and so on. All the, I can't pronounce his name properly. Kuklin, whatever. Kuklin. Kuklin. Whatever their names are. All those cool Celtic heroes that are like awesome spearmen and can like stand on the, head, the tips of trees and kill three cows by throwing one spear and all that. He talks about them for about a page and how neat they are. And then he goes, obviously, these are just silly fantasy. Anyway, here's how you'd play as a lesser alderman of a small, barren city. <laughs> yeah, he... It's weird, because he was so into, in his religion chapter, going like, every myth is true, Yeah, every one of these is definitely something that exists, even the myths that were like, there's a guy who's super powerful, like all the Celtic ones, or even going back to like, Fucking Hercules and shit. He's like, yeah, all of that is true. 100%. Yeah. All the dumb drawings on flags and tapestries are of real animals. Yeah. Everything of any mythology is true. And then decided to go, but you can't be awesome. Also, it doesn't change the world in any, any No, everything way. played out exactly the same. Right. That's the weirdest thing. He's so in love with the historical context where, you know, oh gosh, yes, a, a wizard would never hang out with a cunning man. Those are two different classes of alchemists. And so on, but but then he's like, also there's lions that have one head and two bodies running around. Yeah, which, uh, he does kind of occasionally go, alright, you can just play in the Middle Ages if you really want to, or play in a fantasy setting. But he never tells you, like, mostly he tells you if you're going to play in the fantasy setting, pick a fantasy book and set it there. Yeah, but it's it kind of a like... get-off-my-lawn model, like, if you want to play in a fantasy setting, fuck you. Oh yeah, well... He has an entire chapter in here dedicated to where most people would have a recommended reading, like, paragraph, maybe, where it was, maybe look at these books or these movies or whatever. He has an entire chapter where he pretty much just reviews books. Yeah, and he kind of rips into a lot of them, too. It's not nice. No, there's there's a bunch he's like, well, this is obviously terrible. The characters in this do not have any sort of resemblance to what you would find in a regular world. And like, yeah, it's a fucking fantasy book. Uh, yeah, there's dragons and shit, you dick. <laughs> How did you not notice? <laughs> uh, and also, it's not just that one chapter, because sprinkled throughout the book, he'll occasionally toss in little snide asides to authors that I guess he considered his contemporaries. Like, there's a part where he's talking about how you could be a, uh, a guild member in an ancient medieval city. You'd yeah, be like, because there were guilds. Yeah, so you could be like, oh, I'm in the guild of land collectors. I collect your urine and boil it down for, for phosphorus. But then he then he pop points out in the same sentence, there is no such thing, of course, as a thieves' guild. Sorry, Fritz. Now, before you think he's just being generically racist to German people, which is exactly what I thought. I read "Sorry, Fritz," and I'm like, man, you're still sore about World War II, aren't you? <laughs> he's pretty, you know, he was alive. Sorry, Jerry. He wasn't even alive during the Blitz, but. <laughs> but but no, he he's actually talking to Fritz Lieber, who wrote all the Fawford and the Grey he's, Mouse... He's actually talking er, to Fritz the Cat. Yeah, he's talking to Fritz the Cat, a character that would exist 
two years before he wrote this book <laughs> or so. <laughs> no way he saw that. <laughs> but he knew about it. Yeah. But obviously. no, yeah, he, he was talking to Fritz Lieber who wrote the Lankmar books, which are about a thieves guild. And he's like, oh, sorry, Fritz, your stupid book about a god with eye, with seven eyes is very unrealistic. It's like, well, oh, of course his book would is- ever want one of these? Yeah, his book is unrealistic, you twit, you twit. It's got Ningobble of the Seven Eyes in it. Fritz knew. <laughs> you aren't revealing new information. Oh, yeah. Well, there's so much stuff in here that they're like, oh, well, maybe look at this, though. This may be a bit too much for your game. And you're like, yeah, no, it's a fantasy fucking setting. That's the point. You even call it fantasy wargaming. It's not fantasy if the entire game is just, you're a shit farmer. Uh, Maybe go into a dungeon and die from dysentery? Now, we're going to spend the whole time ripping into this guy, so please, I know he died like a year after writing this book, and it was it was very sad and sudden, and he was very young. We, we know. Yeah, it, we're it, aware. Statute of limitations. And I'm going to say, I actually do have one thing in common with this guy. He didn't like Moorcock very much. Uh, uh, so there we go. Good. Good. <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> All right. I love that he also brings up all of the, uh, what was it, the fantasy setting, the gore ones? Oh, yeah, yeah, the uh, outlaw of gore and so on. Those would make sense for him, because the gore books are deeply sexist. Well, thing is, he brings that up. He's like, alright, the gore books, and these are set in, and it's more up his alley, because it's way more low fantasy. Yeah, but it so is, like, you know, it is set oh. on gore, which is another planet, but let's, no, don't worry about that guy. No, but he's fine, because he's just like, yeah, there'd be all of these priest kings and warriors, and it's fu- much more like a normal setting that you would want to have for a fantasy game. Just beware, it's a little sexist, and um, a might racy for some people. Like, yeah. Yeah, because it's talking about, you know, raping people, so maybe don't. And not just raping people, but raping people into submission is is the point of the gore series. It's a lot of, I raped her till she liked it. Oh, God. Okay, and here, talking about it, I'm no great advocate of women's lib, but these books are sufficiently strong in places to be more than mildly offensive, and you'll have to form your own judgment of them. For heaven's sake, don't let a liberated wife or girlfriend read them, or you'll never hear the end of it. Thank you. Oh my god. Thanks. Oh man, can you imagine him popping the pipe in and out of his mouth to deliver that invective? <laughs> Women's lib! <laughs> now, now well, you hear that voice and picturing a pipe, but also know this guy was like 20 when he wrote this. Well, yeah. Yeah. He, he was that day's current uh, men's rights activist. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, the only problem with this guy is that the fedora was actually in style at the time. <laughs> so was the Sansa belt pants, though. Look, fantasy war game is, is about ethics in war games, okay? <laughs> So yeah, he's not a big fan of women's lib. Oh, well, why don't we get into that when we talk briefly here about, or for the rest of the podcast even, about character creation in this fucking thing. Oh boy, character creation. You certainly do technically have to make a character for this. Yeah, you, you as you're reading your way through the book, you hit page, I think it's like 122 of this 200-page book, where it goes, this is how you make a character. Oh, yep, right around 120-ish. Yep. This is how you make a character. And, and you're like, wait, oh, I forgot. I forgot this was a book of rules for playing role-playing games. Oh yeah, up until this point, it had mostly just been a treatise on the Dark Ages. Yeah, it had just been some guy's grumpy rant about women's liberation and dirt. And then he was like, and here's a game you could play. (laughs) Thanks. Oh my gosh, thank you. However, it didn't stop there, because immediately after you get into the how to make a character, okay, well you're going to need to get your name, your sex, and your nationality. Now... 
players wishing to play a female character must unfortunately take the penalties of a patriarchal society. Which means, get the following adjustment. Minus three to physique and endurance. Minus two charisma. Social class, minus three. Bravery, minus two. Greed, selfishness, and lust, minus three. They will be excluded from combat. Excluded from all combat, you say? From all combat, from all parts of the church, save the nunnery, and expected in most cases to adopt a domestic position as wife, housekeeper, and servant. These factors are invariable. <laughs> I, I don't understand what he was trying to go for with this. And, and I mean, I know we're going to be laughing at the funny sexist. Like, first question here. Do you think he still thinks he lives in a patriarchal society in 1979 or whatever it was that he was starting to write oh, this no, down? Oh, no, we're in a post-patriarchal society. We have liberated women. So does he think he's e the equal of women when he's reading this, when he's <laughs> writing this down and saying, well, only women of the ancient past were weak and stupid? Oh, I have to imagine that if he was like, and here are the rules for making characters nowadays. Women are still smelly and weak. Yeah. Uh, so that... And the fact that he also made them minus to charisma as well. Yeah. Normally you, you end up having people being like, oh, well, you're not... As strong as men, but you're better looking. Oh, so biotruths. Even yeah, even if you follow the biotruths back to like first edition D and D when they put that in like a dragon magazine or something, they were like, "All right, women get dexterity and uh, like constitution bonuses and charisma bonuses." They were like, "Men get plus two strength, women get plus one charisma, constitution, dexterity." Because they always go like, "Oh, well, we want to pull strength away from women because that's the only thing that we think we're better at because we're greasy nerds." But we'll have to give them something so that our moms don't get mad at us. So here's some other stats that they get instead. This guy was like, oh no, I'll throw that to the wind. Women are bad at everything. Yeah, women are bad at everything and can't be anything but nuns. And that's the weirdest thing. The whole invariable thing to me is so weird because, like, he spent all that time researching the, hi the history. He has to know about the female heroes of Celtic mythology, of Norse mythology, of actual female heroes like Boudicca and uh, Joan of Arc. Oh, yeah. No, these are actual, for real, in the time period that you want to set your dumb game, people. And he was still like, nope, this is invariable. You are never allowed to play someone that's an actual hero outside of the standard norms. Which is the problem I have with all of these heartbreakers, that they go, here's what normal humans were like, you should be that. The point of stories that are fantastical not even, is that they aren't just regular people or if they are they become better not even role-playing games like oh the, yeah the point of stories is the is that you're following an interesting legendary character yeah if you start a story and you're like there was a farmer and he stayed on his farm until one day goblins attacked and then he was sad about it because they ruined his farm his his crops weren't very good that's the story. That's the whole goddamn story. Tom Sawyer's parents wanted him to whitewash a fence, and so he did. Hooray! <laughs> like, it's fucking awful when you don't get into the fact that the reason that you have fantasy, or science fiction, or fiction at all, is that it's taking something that is normal, and making it extraordinary. Making it fantastical. And then just going, no, everyone. Everyone was a shit farmer. You'll be a shit farmer. Your children are shit farmers. Get fucked. Right. That's all it is. Uh, incidentally, that immediately made me think of the sequel to Tom Sawyer whitewashes a fence normally and nothing happens, which is Huck Finn finds a slave chaser. <laughs> that's all. There you go. <laughs> yeah. It's so annoying. I don't understand why these people thought that was what... I mean, I get with this guy. It's because he was a, a historical war gamer. 
And so for him, he was never like, oh, there was a great hero at the Battle of Pevensey in, in 1191, and he slew 30 men! It's like, no, instead, I, uh, 80% of these archers died, and 60% of these heavy pikemen died, and then someone retreated, and a treaty was issued. Yeah, no, it's... Coming at it from that wargaming perspective, there is that sense, like you say, that there's no one guy that's amazing, or if there is one guy that's amazing, it's mostly because he was in charge of leading the troops and planning what they did rather than being particularly amazing in his own right. Which is amusing because there's a chance for that guy to die every time the combat occurs in the mass combat rules that take up ten pages of this book. Huh. Like, if you take, if you send your king out with, with the line, then you work out what percentage he adds up to of the, uh, of the line, and then you roll to see if he dies every time anyone dies in that line. Yeah. <sighs> okay, so here's how you roll character creation. Now, I want you to keep in mind that this guy does not like Dungeons and Dragons. No, he does not. He, he was sitting there, and it was black and white, and he threw down the book, looked at the camera, and went, there's got to be a better way! Yeah, and then it flashed over to the next guy, and was like, there is a better way! Set some different names for the same statistics and roll 3d6 for them. And he was like, it's that easy? Yes, it is. Because that's what the statistics are. Oh, yeah. Well, I, okay, in the intro, again, he goes, look, some of you may be asking, why would you try and write anything about fantasy wargaming? Surely everything that could be written about it has been already. <laughs> I love that idea. Oh, we were done writing role-playing books in 1980. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, 3D6 is how you do things. Yeah, well, that's... We've established that's just the science of role-playing. You've probably heard by now about how about the term sacred cow in gaming. Like that, uh, for example, ability scores in modern Dungeons & Dragons don't actually do anything. No, they, they, they just add up to a plus or minus. They generate a bonus, and you might as well just play with that bonus, because knowing you have a 16 in strength is completely the same as knowing you have a 17 in strength, in that they both generate a plus 3, and that plus 3 is your real stat. Yeah, that's that's normal, we've all gotten used to it. This was something they were wrestling with all the way back in 1980, when this guy was saying, oh, they'll never come up with a better way to roll stats, and indeed they have not. <laughs> <laughs> but But he did come up with... A 3D6 model, after delivering a stream of spittle-flecked uh, invective against how terrible D&D is, he then gave you D&D's stat roll model. <laughs> but but worry not about whether or not there's six stats, because there's more. There's like 15 of them, and you roll 3D6 for all of them. How many hit points do you have in this game? 3D6. What's your piety in this game? 3D6. How about your social standing? Oh, that's a 3D6. <laughs> that's going to be a 3D6. That's, that's definitely a 3D6 right there. That's gonna set you back about, uh, about a 3d6. Plus, I gotta, I gotta replace your carburetor. That's another 3d6. Whoa, that filter's not looking good. That's gonna be 3d6. Let me show you this air filter here and how many d6s it's gonna need for you to get a new air filter. The answer, by the way, is three. <laughs> uh, okay. Also, one of my very favorite things in this is once it gets to the point where you're actually, uh, making characters and getting to the rules and everything, the very first thing you need to know about your character is, what is his astrological sign? Because your astrological sign is going to affect all of your stats. Yeah, it is the first thing you roll, and you roll a d12 to determine your astrological sign. And let it be known that these are not even in the slightest. Oh no, some are... I went through and found that the best thing you can be was a, I think it was a Sagittarius at a plus five total yeah, to your stats. You a cumulative plus five to your stats if you're a Sagittarius. And then I think it was like Aries was a 
total cumulative of like minus four. Uh, Aries isn't that bad. One of them is. One of them is. There's one in there that's like. No, it's Gen- Gemini. Yeah. Gemini was garbage. Yeah, don't be a Gemini. Be a Sagittarius. I'm a, I'm a Sagittarius. I'm I'm excited to hear that I've got a whole bunch of stat bonuses and a higher social class. I'm going to tell that to the uh, unemployment office next time I'm there. Look, I know. I, I'm a Sagittarius, so you're going to need to give me a little extra here. You're going to need to really hook me up, because also, have you seen how high my stats are? <laughs> I'm a man. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, all of those are going to give you your pluses and minuses. Now... You'll also see these pluses and minuses to things, and some of the stats you want to be lower because these are your shitty human being stats. Oh yeah, your selfishness, lust, and greed are your your uh, predilections towards that particular sin, which means that women get a, a sort of bonus to those. Yes, because you're lower on those. However, it does mean if you're the one thing you can be that's actually good for a woman, which is being a witch, it also means witches tend to use... The, the bad stats more for like their evil yeah, spells. Yeah, it, it powers their evil spe- their evil sin powered spells. So it means that the one thing you could be that isn't just a nun or a housewife, you are worse at it because you are a woman. Yep. Hooray! <laughs> of course, men don't make very good witches in this either because they can't be witches. Instead, they're called like cunning men or something. They're, they are, uh, depending on what their social status is. Yeah. They can either be like, your uh traveling huckster types yeah. who are like, I have many trinkets and spells for you, villager. Or the, I sit in a castle somewhere yeah. and I'm like the king's alchemist. The, the, well, it's divided into wise man, cunning man, wizard, runic sorcerer, and arch sorcerer. Well, yeah, because you can also be runic sorcerer if you are a, like, Viking or a Kabbalist if you're Jewish. Uh, because you're going to use runes or little words of power and things like that to do your spells. So, hooray, you have that going for you. Now, one of the stats you roll in this game is your social class. Yeah, you have to roll for social. Now, let's say, for example, you roll like a, a 15 on 3d6. You got very lucky. You get to be a, a a poor knight, I believe, is what that adds up to if you're in the nobility. You can also be the leader of a small town or, or, or a bishop of or, or something. So, give me the 15 across there, would you, John? Okay, so if you are a landowner, mm-hmm. then you are a poor knight. Okay. If you're in the clergy, then you are a dean or an abbot. Okay. If you're one of the townsfolk, you get to be a guildmaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are a rural dweller, you cannot get up to 15. The highest you can be as a rural dweller is a 13, and at that point, you're one of the lord's agents. Okay, sure. So that's that's how that works. Now... This is the funny thing. This game is entirely based on the father patrilineal line. So if your dad was a baron and you're his eldest son, you're a baron too, right? No problem. You'll be a baron as soon as he cacks off. But if you're an Ares, then you get a plus one to your social status role, which means all of a sudden, by dint of being an Ares, you're one rank higher than your dad. Well, no, because you find out your social status and then your parents are... Plus one to plus three higher than you. Based on how far away you are in terms of the uh, the line of, uh, of progression. progression. So if you are Ascension. the actual firstborn yeah. son, you're the heir, then they are plus one. Above you. So you're like, okay, well, I'm about to be a baron, so I'm just right below baron. Which, Whereas okay. if you're like the bastard daughter of a baron, then you are three lower. And even then, that still means, oh, well, he's a baron. As a bastard daughter of a baron, I'm still like... A landless knight. Okay, still, if you're the Duke of Yorkshire, 
if your dad is the Duke of Yorkshire, and yep. he is an actual Duke, and that's his social status, yep. and you are his eldest son, yep. and you are an Ares, yep. then you have the same social status as your dad, because you get a plus one to hit your social status. Except, no, because you figure out your dad's social status after your own. Oh, so which means that the moment that you figure out your social status is one higher, your dad's becomes one higher as well. Which means you could, like, force your dad to be a king... By dint of being born in one particular so uh, zodiac sign, basically yes. So any of the ones that give you a plus one after you've rolled your three d six for social class, you add your any bonuses for social class you might have, or get a a minus one to your social class if you're a Pisces because apparently Pisces are not very high in the social class. Weird. Uh, but yeah. So you figure that out, and once you've got all of your baseline stat, including bonuses, then you are plus one to plus three for your parents. Right. Now, here's basically everything you need to do to make a character in this game. You need to roll, and these are all 3d6 rolls, physique, agility, endurance, charisma, greed, selfishness, lust, bravery, intelligence, faith, social class. you got to have faith, by the way. Social class and leadership. Uh, oh, leadership, I'm sorry, is not a rolled table. No, Look, leadership, leadership is, is some shenanigans. This is something I really wanted to talk about, because it was my job to really learn the stats in this game and be ready to talk about it. But here's here's how you calculate your leadership. Three times charisma plus physique plus intelligence plus bravery plus four times social class divided by ten. Great. Isn't that the anti-life equation? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah. When you have uh, selfishness plus greed plus loss plus hatred hatred minus... Minus joy divided by Superman equals... (laughs) (laughs) Equals Y where Y equals dark side and dark side equals death. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's the anti-life equation. And that's a little one. Yeah, no, that's one of the little ones. And the, okay, leadership, also, this is one of those things where... Oh my god, leadership. Okay, so D&D had, and we talked about this before, you had your shot caller. You had the guy who was like, yeah, I sort of, I'm the go-between between between the party and the DM. And this guy wanted to take that one step further, where he was like, oh no, you don't just have one that person that's a shot caller. You actually have an in-game leader of your party. You have to. If someone is not currently leading your party... Someone has to lead it. It doesn't matter. It's always there. And if someone is tied in leadership stat, you have to fight for it. You have to fight. One of you can back down if he wants to suffer penalties to his charisma and his derived leadership statistic. Not because of taking the charisma penalty, in addition to taking the charisma penalty. Oh yeah. You you automatically get penalties to a bunch of shit and suck a lot because someone had to be the leader. Well, and could, you couldn't tie. Yeah, you couldn't tie. So one of you is the leader and the other one is a bitch. And then, then after that, there are three pages, full pages of rules with a lot more of those big calculation statistics for the process by which you argue with the leader. Yeah, there's an entire section that is, how, if the leader decides something, do I, as not the leader, say, I'd rather do something else? These three pages come in before it explains how to hit people with swords. Oh, it's way more important that you know how to argue with your leader. The structure of this book is such that you figure out what your astrological sign is, then you roll stats, then you figure out who your dad is, then you figure out how to argue with the boss of your party. Oh, and then there's a great thing in there. In the part where it's got the persuasion rules for how to argue with the player who represents your boss, there is a minus four penalty to persuading him for things if he has declared no persuading me for things. Yeah. He's, he has declared no take backsies, and you shall not take back. Yeah, you're like, what, we're in the double ultra negative zone. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it is opposite day. <laughs> Fry up some opposite day kippers, I say. I mean, I do not say. 
And by fry them, that, uh, that of course means bake them. <laughs> Frying is the opposite of baking. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I would have figured it's rapidly freezing them. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh, so there's a million derived stats you have to figure out, but they include things like whether or not your character is literate. Uh, for example, if you want to figure out if your character is literate, you take your intelligence and social class points that are over 12. So subtract 12 from your intelligence and social class points. Uh, multiply that result by 10. Add 10% if the character is a major cleric. Subtract 10% if the character is a warrior. Do both if the character is both. Throw percentage dice, and if you are below the number that you came up with, your character is literate. Otherwise, your character is not. Good. Great. This I've... game has six skills, and all of them work that way. Yeah. Uh, for example, there are there's also riding, swimming, tracking, and singing... <laughs> and that's it. And every character just rolls on a chart to see whether or not they can do these things. Except for the characters that can't roll at all. Like, for example, slaves can't roll to see if they know how to ride. And uh, I, I think uh, lo low-class people also don't get a chance of singing. Yeah, because obviously if you are from the low class, you don't sing. There has never been a point where the oppressed people have sung. Ever. Well, not well. Not in the courtly manner to which we are accustomed. Oh, of course not. All of that chanting they do out in my fields. Oh, of course, that's not singing. That's just brutish grunting. Now, does that sound racist for us to say that about poor Bruce Galloway, the non-fan of Women's Lib who wrote this book? Don't feel too bad, because when you get to the gear section and you look in the animals, the first animal in the animal section is slave. Congratulations, Bruce. You did it. You put human slave as the first animal. It's before cat and dog. Even alphabetically, it should be somewhere back behind horse. <laughs> You'd think that, and yet. But no, it's the first one. And you know why it's the first one, John? Why? Because they're the cheapest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good job, Brucey. You done did it. You done made it so that it's cheaper to get a slave than a dog. And he accused D&D &D of putting slaves in it. And then he's like, oh, well, the slaves are just everywhere. Everyone has slaves in ancient... No, they didn't! No one. No one has them. Stop that. It's, it's so weird. Anyway, so you do all that stuff. You also have to roll on one of my favorite tables in the book, the bogey table. Oh, yes, to see if you have a fedora and if you are looking at someone, kid. Uh, yeah, okay, you could also you could call it a Humphrey Bogart bogey table. I'm a little confused by this because I could have sworn that bogey was specifically British slang for boogers. <laughs> I, I thought that's what it was. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it means a lot more. I know it also is a golf term, and I think it means zero in some cases. Well, yeah. Bogey is used for a lot of stuff. Yeah. But I could have sworn... Also, it's like a ghost or, yeah. or a goblin or something. But I could have sworn that in England, it was specifically boogers. <laughs> like, that was the number one use for bogey. I'm, I'm basing this on my extensive reading of Roald Dahl books. I am basing this on Harry Potter. And Harry Potter as well. Yeah. So... <laughs> Children's literature. So, the bogey table is the weird things about your character table. Yeah. And and when you do it, you roll a d6, and you, uh, you if you roll a, a one or two, you get one roll on the bogey table, two or three, or three or four, you get three, or two, and five or six, you get three results on the bogey table. Then you roll percentile dice, and a one through 35 is nothing. Yeah, it's just, oh, no, you're normal. You're normal. And then everything after that is stuff that's weird about your character. Like, perhaps your character is uh, sexually irresistible, or has bad body odor. Or, uh, or both. Or both, yeah. Uh, homosexual is on there, which is also listed as a class 6 sin. Yep. That actually lines up correctly, I'm pretty sure. Because class 7 sins, I believe, is exclusively uh, murder and betrayal. 
And and I'm going by by the actual pits of hell depths. Good. Yeah. You're, you're going by the uh, the classic inferno. Yes, exactly. Where like I think uh, the fifth circle is like sophistry or something. Is assholes that don't believe in things. <laughs> yeah. There you go. But sixth circle is correct for homosexuality, but you can roll that and be forced to play it or play a bisexual, or you can roll that you're a Jew, a heretic, or a Muslim, which has brackets that indicate that all right-thinking Christians will shun you. Of course. Of course. It's an amazing table. And then, in addition to things like you have weird hair, or you are a, 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 an accomplished speaker, you can also roll stuff like you are clairvoyant and can see through walls once every 12 hours. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you can be a gay Jewish clairvoyant and then will be immediately murdered by any Christian who sees well, you. Well, any right-thinking Christian. Or left-thinking Christian. <laughs> any Christian of any kind. But yeah, you can also have things like the gift of tongues, which lets you decipher any language within a day. Or, uh, how about bisexuality? Or, you could be a homophobic homosexual. Good. Self-hating homosexual? That's, uh, that's definitely some log cabin Republican stuff there. You can also be a person who is both beautiful and ugly. Sweet. Or a stammer, but you're an excellent orator. Oh, yeah. So, uh... Like a, like you, your, you, like your porky, porky pigs. pigs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're, you, no one knows exactly how you got the job, but you're, you sure do close out every cartoon. <laughs> Everyone loves hearing you stutter. It's amazing. It's, it's perfect for you. Yeah. <laughs> you get your max headroom bonus. <laughs> got my own TV show. <laughs> All right, so that's the bogey table. And then you determine how much gold you have. And, oh my God, I don't even care at all about telling you what it costs to buy things in this game. Because who gives a shit? It's his attempt at doing it super realistically, but what I want to talk about instead, if I may, and you may, is how to hit someone with a sword in this game. Oh, well, I mean, that should take you all of ten seconds. I, you roll a die, and, the, and then you see if you hit him, right? Now, uh, remember that this guy started the book with telling us about how he wanted a unified sort of rule that would help streamline games. Like, in the very beginning, yeah, he was his, like... His intro, he really wanted a unified game rule theory that would get everything together. That's correct. Now... Just, just here we go. This is how this is how combat works in fantasy wargaming. Note that this is not mass combat. Mass combat has a whole different set of rules, which is basically the same rules that people still use to play their Napoleonic war games today. Yes. Okay. Uh, step one: check morale. Morale equals combat level plus bravery plus about a page of possible adjustments. Cross-check the results of that total uh, of uh, combat level plus bravery plus etc. against a percentile table, which you'll find on page one forty-seven, uh, with five possible results, including things like dithering, uh, obeying orders, or fleeing. Uh, okay, before engaging in any... You check morale before engaging in any combat, when you fall to half endurance, when you take five damage, and your bravery is seven or less, on entering a level higher than that of your party leader. I'm still not even sure what that one means. Uh, when, along with up to two other people, you are separated from your party and don't know how to get back to them, when you're deserted, when you first take damage in any adventure, when at least three people have died in the past 20 minutes, and also at the discretion of the Game Master. Those are the times at which you will take morale... During combat. Next thing, uh, step two of combat. You have to check for with your control for all characters to see if they go berserk. Obviously, because it's really likely for someone to just go berserk. Now, it says that it's not likely for most people to go berserk. It's 1-5% to 5% chance in most cases. But you do have to check it. Uh, it, it. It's your step two before you go into combat. Certain characters actually want to go berserk because this game does have Vikings. So, again, to go berserk, uh, here's how we do this. Half combat level, plus about a half page modifiers, mostly to do with whether or not you're a Viking. Roll percentile and cross-check with a control check chart for the result of Berserk or not Berserk. 
All characters can go berserk, but only Vikings really want to. Okay, great, so that's berserk check. No problem. We're right through that, we're breezing, we're moving right along. We get to step three. Uh, characters who still have free choices, which is the way it's written in there. So I guess not if you're playing a slave, for example. Or your party leader has told you exactly what to do, and you're following his issues that is because correct. you had to check morale and control already. That is correct, yes. So if you actually get a choice in what you're doing, you receive a 45-second period to decide what your character will do, but you should be ready in 10 seconds. It says that in the book. Uh, step four, we do long-range missile weapons, and we'll get to that when I actually describe how to hit stuff. That's not what we're talking about right now. Well, I'm, I'm still sitting there, sword in hand, I waiting know. to go. Okay, step five. Readied spells and magic items. Though this sequence is called out for a mission if the party falls victim to a surprise attack. Which means that uh, while you can fire your bow if you're surprised, you cannot use your wand. Great, okay. Post-combat. Oops, we forgot to talk about how to hit things. Right to post-combat, do morale and berserk again, and then return to actual combat. Huh. So every time you try to hit someone, and they try to hit you back, the next thing you do is go to morale and see if you need to roll morale or if you go berserk. Every time. Every time. Okay, great. So we kind of forgot while we were talking about that to talk about how to hit someone with a sword. I'm sorry, I forgot that. Why don't we do that now? Step one. Check that you meet the minimums for agility and physique based on your weapon. Each weapon requires an agility of something and a physique of something else. For an example, a dagger requires at least an 11 physique and a 10 agility. Yeah. Most of them are pretty high. Now keep in mind you're rolling d 3d6s. No re-rolling. No bonuses. No 46 drop. No 46 drop. Which means, on average, most characters can't wield a dagger. Yeah. The only weapon that, on average, most characters can wield is a gun. That's the only one in the game. And that's what's wrong with society. Right? Oh my god. So, first check that. Now, compare the agility and physique in excess of the minimum required to wield the weapon against the encumbrance your character is currently carrying. If this ends up being a negative modifier, if your endurance is minus 6 and your, your bonus to your weapon is plus 2, you're at a minus 4. If it ends up to a negative modifier, apply the full negative value to your final roll or, or your final calculation for hitting. If it's positive, however, cut it in half and then apply that. That's step one. I'm oh, sorry, that's step two. Step three. At step three, we have to split up real quick. I'm sorry. I'll try to explain. Just stay with, stay with me. Step three. This is how you hit people with distance weapons. Here's your uh, chart. You're going to do combat level plus surplus agility and physique divided by two and then add... Bonuses for slow-moving targets, large targets, very large targets, very slow-moving targets. Penalties for medium and small targets, fast-moving targets, tiny and exceedingly fast targets. So there's bonuses and penalties for that. Don't forget to add your astrological influence bonuses or penalties. For example, if you're a Sagittarius and it's not a good time for Sagittarius to be battling, you might be suffering a little penalty here. It's true. Great. Then factor in your luck. Finally, factor in all melee factors not marked with a star. We'll talk about those in just a second. That's all you need to know. That's going to generate a number somewhere between negative 6 and positive 14. You're going to take that number, roll it against, or cross-check it on a percentile die roll that you're going to result uh, roll, and that will tell you where on the person you hit them, if at all. <laughs> okay, that was our split. The other split was melee weapon step. Melee weapons, to hit someone with a melee sword. Combat level, plus surplus agility and physique divided by, divided by 2, and then add melee factors. Here we go. Here's some factors you need to keep into track. Low intelligence, low bravery, low endurance, berserk, outnumbered, even lower stats, damaged in the last phase, not using your favorite weapon, blow carried over from a parry in which the opponent's weapon broke, blow is partially parried or dodged, character is exhausted, then there's bonuses for being smart, brave, high endurance, uh, basically all the same stuff I mentioned earlier, except it affects your opponent instead of you. Again, will result in a number between negative 6 and positive 14, roll percentile, cross-check on a chart, that's going to tell you whether or not you hit. 
Then, that's just A, to cross-check to see where you hit, which can be anywhere from a miss to a strike to the heart. Go to B. Roll to the, uh, see the damage caused by the, tar to the part of the target hit according to a weapon table in a different part of the book. It'll tell you how much damage you do. And add your surplus physique divided by 2. Again, surplus physique is any in excess of what you need to wield the weapon divided by 2. Don't forget to subtract your opponent's armor value, and the result is the endurance the enemy subtracts. What's endurance? It's the hit points of the game. How do you calculate hit points in the game? Roll 3d6. Woo! Oh, you thought I was done. I'm sorry. Okay. Next section, if you manage to hit them in an area that does double damage, for example, the heart or throat, apply double damage. Other areas, like for example getting hit in the stomach, may cause you to double over and give, the, give your opponent a free attack. Step 5, you may be wondering, never during this point, this uh, discussion did you discuss parries and dodges. That's because any time you get a simultaneous action with someone else, you can choose to forego swinging at them to, to attempt to parry and dodge. This will block a portion of the damage that they deal to you. But you can easily fail a parry or dodge. The primary factor is whether or not you have enough room to maneuver. Yeah, so if you're in a hallway, or a large room, or outside, or there's a bunch of shit around you, that will determine whether or not you can dodge or parry well. The order of activations, I, I feel like I breezed part, past part of it, because I said long-range missile weapons and then moved to melee combat. But actually, there's a step between long-range weapons and melee combat. That step is, do you have a longer sword than your opponent? Well, yeah, there's a, uh, a lot of RPGs have that... Well, if you've got a sword, and I've got a pole arm and he's got a dagger, then I've got a bonus, and I can go do things because I've got a longer reach. You've got reach. In this game, it just lets you go first. If you get a bonus melee action round, if you have a longer weapon, and it's defined as a weapon that's two feet longer than your opponent's weapon. And you, it's not even like a bonus, it's just you go in a bonus attack round. Good. Okay, great. So there you go. That's how you hit people in this game. Did that seem simple to you? Oh, keep in mind, this is one of my favorite things, and it keeps cropping up in this game. This guy has a luck stat, and I feel like it's the only unified thing he actually put in here. You roll luck with everything. Here's how you roll luck. You roll a d6. On a 1 or 2, you get a minus 1. On a 5 or 6, you get a plus 1. The end. That's luck. Not that big of a deal, right? Except that it's constantly used in things where you end up rolling against a big percentile table later to see if you miss or hit. That's what luck is! <laughs> uh, yeah, his... He had this weird obsession with astrology and... Uh, things being the right time for whatever. So in addition to, all right, well, if you're trying to cast a spell, and oh my god, casting a spell is also one of those things where it's, uh, I kind of liked it in that there, there's not a lot of the, I have a spell list as much as it is, all right, I want to do this type of effect. Uh, this type of effect is governed by this astrological sign. So if I am of that sign, I get a bonus. If I'm the opposite of that sign, I get a penalty. All that shit. But he's got so much that's based on the stars and luck. And are, am I in a place that is uh, attuned to the type of thing that you want to do? So like, oh, do I know my opponent's true name. Oh, yeah. He's got a lot of true name stuff. And part of me goes, this is dumb. But another part of me says, this was all shit that like, Dark Age, Middle Age things, that's what magic was. Yeah, the luck thing, though. The luck thing kills me. Imagine, just to, to play it in a simpler game, let's say we were playing 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons. You know your target's armor class, you roll a d20, you add your bonus to hit. Do you hit? We just check, compare the number you roll against your target's armor class. Now imagine that in addition to rolling a d20, you also rolled a d4. And if you got a 1 on that d4, you took a minus 1 to your d20 roll. And if you rolled a 4, you got a plus 1 on your d20 roll. And you called that die luck. Would it change anything? No, it wouldn't change anything. It wouldn't change anything at all because it's got the equivalent chance of being good or bad or nothing. 
It's not luck. It's just an extra die you roll for no fucking reason. Yep. Nope. It's just... I mean, I guess it adds the ability to possibly do something you normally couldn't. In D&D it does, but in this game, all it does is influence your target number that you cross-check against a giant percentile table, which it will not affect. It will not give you a higher potential maximum. It's true. It's in, it, it does nothing. It's just in there for no reason, because he didn't realize that percentile dice are already a luck-based factor, and decided he still needed to introduce luck to his game. Uh, now, keep in mind, we've been talking for almost an hour now, and we haven't even talked about magic or the piety tables. So oh my god. Okay, so we had mentioned this. I'm going to go ahead and let you know. God has stats. Now, he's going to give you the stats for God. This is also the game where if you wanted stats for the Virgin Mary, you've got those in here. Gee, I wonder what her astrological sign is, John. Why? It's a Virgo, because he had no sense of how to do anything imaginative. <laughs> yeah. However, God is a Leo. So all you Leos out there, just know, God is one of you. Now we know. God's a Leo. God's a Leo, which means that sometime before God was created, the astrological system was created. Yeah, it means that we know what God's birthday is. Roughly. We have some about a month of knowledge about what God's birthday is. Satan's too. Satan is also a Leo. That's probably why they don't get along. Oh, it's true. Those Leos never get along with each other. I assume. I don't know anything (laughs) about astrology. (laughs) Uh, All I know is that my horoscope's super boring because I'm a Sagittarius, and by the time you get down to the bottom of the astrological chart, the person writing it has always run out of good stuff. So it's always like, Sagittarius, um, I don't know, you'll, you'll financial meet some, you know. Stuff. Stuff. Okay, <laughs> so, if, if I want to fight the Virgin Mary, her combat level is 10. She's got a 28 intelligence, 26 endurance, 32 agility, her physique is 24, has 384 mana. The same as God, by the way. God has a question mark in mana. Oh, very nice. Ooh, you know his combat level is 24 and his intelligence is 40, and that's it. That's weird, though, because this is the Catholic Virgin Mary, which means a lot more people are worshipping her than 384 mana worth. (laughs) But she's got a magic level of 24 and a faith of 34. The Catholics are bonkers for the Virgin Mary. And so the only reason you get these is because as a cleric, most of the time in order to cast a spell, you're just calling on... It's very Catholic. You call them the saint of whatever the thing you want to do there's is. there's a lot of saints, yeah. So in this one... And equivalent demons. You would call upon the Virgin Mary if you wanted to do something that had to do with virginity, motherhood, or forgiveness. Her areas of disfavor include sex. I love the idea that you have to, as a regular shit adventurer, you have to go out and do something that has to do with virginity. Well, yeah. You've got to, I don't know, restore someone's virginity. What? Yeah, that's right. You that's... unfuck them. <laughs> that sounds like one of those things you could buy from the Pope. You know, from like <laughs> Oh, his... it's 100%. Yeah. This... Like a little Pope book. Like, he's got a little Pope menu. This book includes the calculation for how quickly you can get from purgatory to heaven. This book does. My notes do. That was <laughs> one of my favorite things, so I actually took it down. Would you like, if your character has died, would you like to calculate how long it will take for your character to move from Purgatory, or Purgatorio, as it was known in the Divine Comedy, to Heaven? Why, I would love to know that thing that has no bearing on my story. I know, because you've probably rolled another character by now, but just so you know, here's how you do it. First of all, calculate the piety band of your character at death. Piety band is just a skill or a stat that you have that shows how pious you are. It's very mobile, and it moves constantly. Every time you do anything good or bad, your piety, piety band moves around. It's probably the most annoying part of trying to track in this game. Yeah. Okay. 
Take Piety Band plus Religious Experience level of character at death divided by two, modified in the following ways. If, the, if your faith is less than eight, then minus one. If it's greater than 14, plus one. Add in the standard luck calculation. And then, don't forget to work out propitiation by your relatives. For example, if your uh, relatives spend 20 gold sovereigns on, in prayers, alms, benevolences, and indulgences, then you get a plus one to your final, your, uh, final number. With a maximum of plus four, if they've spent 80 gold sovereigns on various indulgences and so on. Plenipotentiary indulgences, one might say. If all of that is 10 or higher, the character gets into heaven this year! Yay! Otherwise, you can check every 50 years to see if they get get into heaven, or if their boobies finally develop. <laughs> this is, at least, and again, it's one of those things where, yes, the Catholic Church essentially just came up with purgatory as a goddamn scheme to be like, Hey, you know when you die, you go to God's waiting room and, I mean, you'll eventually get to heaven, but your poor Aunt Sally is suffering in purgatory for her sins. And for a mere 20 gold sovereigns, a steal at twice the price, <laughs> you can cut that number down. Come on, man. Wouldn't you want someone to do it for you? I mean, okay, that's great. I love that that's a real thing that the Catholic Church actually did for hundreds of years. Why are there rules for it? Why is it just in the first part of his book where he's like, look, Catholic Church was sort of super corrupt and they did hilarious shit like this? <laughs> Like, just put it that way, and it would be funny. Because his whole point was, everything is real. Everything is true. Everything is true, yeah. but even, so I have to put that in there. Even then, if it's true, you don't need rules for it, because it doesn't have nothing to do with anything. Your character died 30 years ago. In 20 years, you can see if your character gets into heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, there's only a few things left in here. There's a magic system, and the magic system is supposed to be super freeform, which means it's... I want to say 20 pages of disconnected charts and and uh, lists of numbers. Oh, yeah. You've got a bunch of uh, overarching categories of things like fire or air or yeah. light a lot or of whatever. Them, a lot of them just tell you what their sin rating is. So it'll be like, necromancy, this is a class six sin. This is as bad as being gay. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you raise a dude from the dead and then fuck him, class seven. Oh, no, he's not alive. That's an undead dude. <laughs> it's not gay if he's already dead. It's buggery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Thanks, church. <laughs> okay, great. So there's a whole bunch of rules for that, and then the end result is like three pages of basic spells, and they like, oh, it's the most freeform magic system you've ever heard of. You can use it to cast spells like turn stone to mud, or create light in an area, or wall of, I don't know, fire? So so it's it's the most... A freeform spell or system in the world that creates D&D spells. The the hilarious thing to me is it has an entire section of, alright, if you want to create a spell, and it's got this calculation, like everything else we've mentioned, where it's like, oh yeah, alright, so Luck you're factor. trying to do a fire spell. Yeah. Are you a fire sign character? Then you get a plus one. Are you a water sign character? You get a minus one. Do you pray to the god of fire and bullshit? Then you get a whatever. And then take your piety and your bravery and your faith, and take that and divide it by... Okay. It's huge calculation. And then after that, it goes, and here's a list of spells that don't fall into those categories. Now, one of the categories was illusion. One of the spells that doesn't fall into that category is invisibility. Eat my dick, that's an illusion spell. It really just meant that he had already written that spell list out. And he was, by God, if he wasn't going to put it in the book. <laughs> so, that's there. Finally, we got to talk real briefly about the bestiary, because it's one of the fun, most fun things in this stupid, stupid book. Because <laughs> basically, his bestiary is everything exists and everything is real, 
even though everyone's just a dirt farming peasant, I guess they're just constantly getting getting eaten by manticores and shit and not doing anything about that, because why would you bother? It's like, well, I, I have to spend my time collecting pee for the local governor, but, oh, my son got eaten by a flying snake. Should I do anything about that? No, I'm going to keep living in a thatch daub hut. Because <laughs> nothing changes. So... So anyway, there's a bestiary. The bestiary's primary source by, from which it pulls monsters is, like, like uh, flags and shields. So anything you've ever seen on a flag or a shield, you know, oh, a lion with a head on both ends, and oh, a deer with the head of a goat and the legs of an elephant. It's, like, <laughs> it's a deer with the head of a deer and the legs of a deer. The legendary Esquilax. <laughs> the, yeah, that's so, so it's all of those with stats, and, you know, they're, uh, they're all very dangerous. One of my favorite things about the bestiary, there are two. Uh, I'm going to save my other one for the worst thing in the book for me. <laughs> but but one of them is... Uh, oh, shit, I've just forgotten what it was. Oh, poisons. All of the poisons are instantly fatal. Every one. All of them. If something is poisonous in this book, it is instantly fatal poison. Even though there is a section for how poison works in the book. <laughs> and the answer isn't poison. It kills you. It's poison. Here's a bunch of fucking rules and you have to roll against this and you lose some endurance and you get it back at this rate. Unless you're bitten by anything in the game that's poisonous, then you die. <laughs> With one Excellent. exception, one, one exception, the carnivorous sheep, which is from Celtic mythology. And again, even though it is poisonous, it doesn't use the poison rules. It uses its own poison rules. Because this guy is, 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 uh, fucking, what's his face from, uh, from Palladium? It's that guy's granddad. <laughs> there you go. It's Symbiata's grandfather. That's who this is. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. So. Let's, I think we've, we've, yeah, let's, let's let's get into the, let's get, the end here. All right, John, what would you say is your favorite thing about this book? Okay, my favorite thing is his baseline idea of everything is true. I love when I love the Pratchett idea of faith is what creates a god and what powers it. Yeah, I love the idea that all of the shit that has ever been is true, and the reason that like oh well, the reason Zeus doesn't walk around anymore is because. People purposefully stopped them from praying to him, so his power ran out. Oh yeah, that's the coolest thing. That works for Planescape, that works for Discworld, that even works for American Gods. Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's an awesome thing. It's so, it's a great idea for belief as power, and it makes it so that not only are gods these powerful things, but it means they have to care about humans, so you don't get shit like the Palladium Gods, which are just like, well I would murder everything given the chance. And I have the power to, I don't know why I haven't. I mostly just ride around on a cybernetic motorcycle and hang out with someone with blown out hair. <laughs> That's Riff's gods. Uh, so yeah, that that idea, the fact that he wanted to incorporate that into his game, definitely my favorite thing the, in this. The fact that he did not incorporate it into his game. Well, I... the fact that he wrote that he wanted to incorporate it into his game, my favorite thing. Okay, Jeff, your favorite thing. This book is the Burgess Shale of role-playing games. This book is the Burgess Meredith of role-playing this games. Is, this book is the Burgers Meredith, <laughs> a, a hamburger restaurant themed after Burgess Meredith of role-playing games. Burgers enough at last. <laughs> no. Have you ever heard of the Burgess Shale? No. Oh, yes. Yes, I have. Okay, so for people who haven't, the Burgess Shale is a big chunk of Western Canada that's got a lot of sedimentary rock deposit full of really neat frost fossils from the Precambrian era, which means they're about 500 million years old. The reason they're cool is because a ton of the of the animals that are preserved in that shale have nothing to do with modern animals at all. <laughs> they're, they're evolutionary lines that died out very early and in very weird ways. There's stuff with like a, a weird proboscis straw that is not a mouth. It's like a hand coming out of their face. Their face has five eyes, by the way. And then they take the straw and scoop stuff out of the bottom and eat and feed it to their own mouth. It's weird. It's crazy shit. 
that's technically alive and technically recognizable as life, but has no bearing on modern life whatsoever. This book is the Burgess Shale of role-playing games. It's like it's like role-playing games' weird great-uncle. <laughs> like you could look at it and go, oh yeah, that's part of the family. I can kind of tell. I don't want it to get anywhere near my youngest, though. I'm glad it's got nothing to do with my gene pool anymore, but it's neat to read it. That's what this is. This book is a neat idea. It's a whole collection, like a huge, vast collection of weird ideas about role-playing games that died in this book. Yeah. And were buried under the mud for us to buy later on for a dollar. <laughs> Which we didn't. People have sent us, I think, three copies of this book. Thanks, everyone, who has sent us a copy of Fantasy Wargaming, the highest level of all. Please stop sending us copies of Fantasy Wargaming, the highest level... No, don't. I'm going to build a fort. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give it out as gifts to people. People I don't like. <laughs> Happy birthday! Here's Torment. <laughs> Alright, so there you go. My favorite thing about this book is reading through the bizarre historical artifacts that it has in it. Awesome. Your least favorite thing about this book. Okay, least favorite thing about this book is... It goes way up its own ass because I loved the beginning uh, intro and it's uh, it decided it wanted to do something early on that I thought was very interesting and was different from D&D. Rather than just being a standard heartbreaker, it was like, no, there's a reason I want to do all these weird things. It actually has bearing on the story. Uh, and then he went into the book, started writing it, got lost in the Cambridge Library and came back out wild-eyed, ranting about shit that had nothing to do with it. And that is my least favorite thing, is the wasted potential in this book. Okay. Now, I want to throw out a very quick... When you, you, I know you're asking me now, so let's just move yeah. along. I want to throw out a quick pie end to the fact that this book is ridiculously sexist. But but it's not worth it. It's not worth saying that's my least favorite thing about the book, because it's not. I, I've read so many sexist books at this point, and this guy's some asshole in 1978 in Britain. I don't give a shit. Like, everyone was this sexist then. It sucked, and this book sucks, and it mentions women's lib in an unfavorable light. But that's not the thing I'm going to say is my least favorite. Instead, I'm going to talk briefly about the unicorn. Alright, tell me about the unicorn. In this book, there are two kinds of animal that are basically unicorns. One of them is the monoceraton or something, which is not a dinosaur, but rather is a great big cow unicorn. Great. The other one is the unicorn, which is described as small, goatish, and having a big old two to three foot horn... Very pure, very white of, of fur and hair and whatever you want to call it. And uh, it says, much like the traditional unicorn of ancient folklore, the, the traditional way to trap and kill these is to have them rest their head in a virgin's lap, for they shall be entranced by her purity, and they shall hold still. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Then it goes on to say, actually, they don't usually hang out entranced in the virgin's lap. Instead, they try to eat her boobs and then fuck her. <laughs> they try to fuck her left and right. Animalishly, do they go about trying to fuck her? It is the big thing for them. They get her in there unicorn style, if you know what I'm talking about. They want to fuck that virgin. Historically, hunters would come and kill the virgin, or kill the unicorn before it could fuck the virgin so bad that she wasn't a virgin anymore. But what happens if it doesn't? Wouldn't that be a great idea, the book asks, for you to play out? Wow. Thanks, book. The book actually, it's the only time in this book that I found where it gives you a game idea. Where it says, hey, why not play this? Is, why not play out the result of letting a rabid unicorn fuck a virgin? <laughs> Thanks, book! Thank you so much for that amazing suggestion. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even get, there's an entire chapter where he has DM advice, and the DM advice is be sure you write out exactly how every trap works, so that when someone is trying to disarm it and they fuck it up, you can let them know exactly why they died. Uh, also in the bestiary, there is a section where he lists various animals, just r real world animals, and then their combat values. 
And there's a whole part in it where he tells you to cut their combat value in half if they're female for the animals that have a star next to their name. And I went through and read them, and I, more than half of those animals are dimorphic in such a way that the female is bigger and stronger. <laughs> eagles, for example, are on the list, as are whales. So, for example, if you want to fight a female eagle, it's a little weak piece of half-strong shit, even though eagles in the wild are half again to twice as big as their male compart- uh, compatriots. Hooray! He doesn't care. Let me just smear some more sexism in there. Let's just get it, get in all the cracks and crevices. Well, he spent so much time looking up the Dark Ages, he couldn't actually yeah. look into animals. Didn't want to spend the time it takes to go to the part of the Cambridge Library that isn't about Normans. <laughs> yeah. God, why would you? Who, uh, everyone, who would ever go someplace that wasn't about some Saxons? Everyone knows that female whales should be spending their time vacuuming. <laughs> <laughs> or making crumpets. Uh, but not good crumpets. The kind you get in a restaurant. Those should be cooked by men. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. My lady should be giving me a good cuppa. <laughs> right. So, so that's... Would you play this game? Would you play... There, I don't... This is one of those games where I don't think I could. Because no. I would just sit there cross-eyed looking at the stats and how to roll and be like, I don't care anymore. Yeah. I don't think... I'm going to go out on a limb here. Maybe this guy... Because, again, I feel bad for even saying this, but this guy died like two years after this book came out. And it was sudden and it was it was bad. Like, he did not die in a happy way. But I'm going to say, during those two years, he never tried to play this fucking thing. He didn't try to play it while he was writing it either. It is unplayable. I want to... I actually would like to say, his intro where he says he played a game and then wanted to make new rules, I don't think he even played the game. No, I think he probably read a newsletter article about one of these games. He may have flipped through Tunnels and Trolls, the like the player's handbook for it, and gone, well, this makes no sense at all. I, I kind of want to, you know, we, we stick to our policy of no research. I only know that this guy died shortly after writing the book because a friend borrowed one of our copies and then told us when he, when he gave it back. So I don't, that, that's the only reason I know. Otherwise I would not know and I would be very insensitive to this dead man. <laughs> but, but, uh, instead of being knowingly insensitive. <laughs> Whatever, fuck the dead. <laughs> fuck, eat your own dead. <laughs> eat the rich. But, but what I want to know is, do you think there's like a, a historical society pres- preserving this game in Cambridge still? Like, do you think there's people playing this in Cambridge? They're like, oh yes, fantasy wargaming is indeed the highest level of all. I hope so. If we have any listeners that are in the Cambridge area, let us know. Go go find some nerds in a library and go, hey man, fancy wargaming. Highest level of all? Yes, no? Maybe. Kind of like the lowest level of, of soon. Of some. It's... Alright, so there you go. Final results are the... Oh wait, I didn't answer. Would I play this game? No. And again, it's because no one can and no one ever has. <laughs> Good. Anyone who says they played this game probably is just playing D&D with a bunch of house rules that look like they're from this game. Oh yeah, they probably looked at the rules for how you play and went, let's just... Put D&D in there. Yeah. Ugh. It's the worst. Alright, so we've been talking for way too long. Way too goddamn long. Why don't I'm we so ra- sorry. Why don't we wrap this bad boy up? This has been, as always, the System Mastery Podcast. You can find us at SystemMasteryPodcast.com or System Mastery on your choice of social media outlets, including Twitter and Facebook and so on. You can support us on Patreon. If you do that, then you will get our bonus content episodes, which is when we make characters in the games we review... That's right. We are now, as I sign off, going to go make fantasy wargaming characters. I will struggle through and find a way to make a guy in this dumb system. Yeah, that's what we're going to do next. So any level you support the Patreon at, you get the bonus content. You can give us 50 cents and get the Patreon bonus content. I don't care. But nowadays, this is something we probably do need to talk about. We just recently hit our $200 goal on the Patreon. 
which is awesome. It's great. Thank you so much. Now, can we actually go to Gen Con on $200 per episode? No. No, we can't. We, <laughs> with no jobs, that money is literally paying our tax, our rent. So, what are we going to do instead? I'm not sure. We'll do something awesome for everybody. If you have suggestions, send it out to us. We'll, maybe we can do some Skype gaming sessions or something. Yeah, we've been looking at some new, uh, awesome additions to our equipment that we could get. Yeah, local, uh, maybe going to local, more local conventions. Or, if you have connections to Gen Con and you can help us get in there at some, whatever the reduced rates are that they help other, what do you call, what do we, what do we want to call ourselves, uh, big celebrities? Yeah, big, big, big time Hollywood podcast celebrities. Big time Hollywood YouTube superstars. If yeah. They, if they have a plan by which they can get people like us into Gen Con at a reduced rate and that would help us use our $200 per episode to get in there, let us know. See, we'll see if we can work something out. But as it stands, it simply isn't feasible. I, maybe we can create that again at a higher rate or something. I don't know. That's why it said Gen Con or something. Now, uh, be sure we have kept this up for a little bit longer. In addition to that, we've got our afterthought poll from, uh, the afterthought a while ago where we've got a bunch of questions for you, including what other things you'd like to see as Patreon goals. That would be perfect. Go fill that out and let us know. Yeah, and uh, just fill out that and be sure to listen to the Afterthought. Wonderful stuff. Uh, we recently had Afterthought with James D'Amato in here. Great guy, great designer. Uh, also episode. has a great uh, podcast that he does. And we've got our Movie Mastery podcast that we do. If you haven't checked that out yet, real fun. We just finished putting up a review of uh, the Insane Clown Posse's Big Money Rustlers, and let me tell you, surprising outcome. It's very surprising, yeah. So there you go. Uh, yeah. Oh, by the way, I, it was mentioned very briefly, but the name of James D'Amato's our uh, podcast, I don't even know why I'm saying this, because almost every one of our fans is actually one of his that came over. Thanks, guys. But his podcast is called One Shot. He also has one called Campaign, one called Critical Success. They're all great. Go check him out. He's... 50 times bigger than us, so I'm not sure why I'm plugging him. (laughs) So there you go. Thanks so much for listening, and everybody, have a wonderful week. I had no money. I'm sure I see you laughing out enough as this new is